Good morning. We're working our way through the Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we've talked about Corinth. Corinth was a dazzling modern Greek city. If you think about it, you think it might, might think about it like Chicago. It was a vital commercial link between East and West. In contrast to the poverty of the surrounding countryside, the inhabitants of Corinth were wealthy, and they flaunted it. It Corinth attracted status-conscious yuppies. And there were some cults there to Aphrodite and Apollo and Dionysius that, invite them, that invited a freedom to dispense with moral restraint. The only thing not tolerated in Corinth was anything that interfered with an individual's right to instant self-gratification. Sound familiar? Sound like any culture we know? On the other hand, Corinth had a significant Jewish community. Within the Roman Empire, think about maybe 10% were Jewish. The wealthy class could afford to eat, drink, and be merry. But the working class couldn't afford that, and they looked up to the Jews for being monotheistic, and they looked at them as being morally sane. The Corinthian Christians had to avoid two ditches. On the one hand, they had to avoid sacred legalism. On the other hand, they had to avoid secular humanism. Paul starts his letter. It's in your worship folder if you want to follow along. He writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For the, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. There would have been pressure from ancient Jews to believe that becoming a Christian meant becoming Jewish. In the early church, the contrast between Judaism, which is the womb from which Christianity was born, and Christianity were so much the same that differentiating them was difficult. To read the Old Testament accounts of God, which is the only Bible they had, the Old Testament, and as they read God selecting the children of Israel, it would have made it easy to believe that the more Jewish one was, the closer to God one became. In this regard, those who were proud of their Jewish heritage would talk about how God walked with them and with their forefathers in the Exodus. Paul does mention, when he talks about our fathers, I think he's talking about Jewish fathers, descendants who were with Moses. He talked about four privileges that were granted them. And there were privileges granted to those who were the the children of Israel. They were guided by the cloud. They crossed the sea on dry ground. The provision of manna in the wilderness and supernatural water. We don't hear a lot of this. There was a rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. There is a tradition, according to the rabbis, and this is what this tradition was, that there was a movable well, 
a movable well, the tradition has it, that followed the Israelites through the wilderness. Again, we don't have a record of this, but this is what tradition taught. There was a rock-shaped, and it resembled a sieve giving to the Israelites in the desert. It rolled along after the wanderers through hills and valleys, and when they camped, it settled at the tent of meeting. Um, as you think about what it would have been like to wander through the wilderness and have the cloud and there was walking on dry ground and we don't know if there was a movable water source. There were water sources that God created along the route. What it would have been like to know for sure what God's will was. Again, there was no question about God's will. If the cloud stopped, God's will was that we stop here. If the cloud moved, it was God's will that we move. We have a sense that that it's not it's not knowing God's will that's the issue. We we want it but don't know it. In the wilderness, that didn't work out quite right. They knew God's will and they didn't want it. God would stop at places that weren't very convenient places to stop, places without water, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Paul points out that even though they had these benefits, as he moves on in verse 5, look what it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the, by the destroyer. Paul paints a picture of bodies strewn in the wilderness. Think of this wilderness where they're walking in circles, bodies strewn everywhere, in spite of the privileges they experienced. There were four tests that were failed. Idolatry. They worshipped beings that weren't God and suffered because of it. Immorality, 23,000 put to death in one day, putting the Lord to the test and grumbling. Paul's point to the Corinthians is to those who might be tempted to become Jewish in order to connect with God. Paul puts the light on what it was really like. Being Jewish was not a safeguard at the time. Um, Jews experienced baptism and a communion-like meal. They were baptized into Moses. They experienced bread and water, spiritual food and spiritual drink. He's pointing out to the Corinthians that they might have had a baptism as well. They have spiritual food and drink the Lord's Supper, but just being able to participate in these things does not make one bulletproof spiritually. There's some other things to consider. 
the Jews weren't bulletproof spiritually, neither Paul would remind the Corinthians that they are not bulletproof spiritually either. Um, Paul would go on to say the four failures the Jews experienced in the wilderness can be traced to a common root, one that the Ten Commandments talks about. But it's the commandment that usually gets left off, the last one, coveting. Coveting really literally means desiring. It can be good or bad depending on what's coveted. It's not a negative word. In fact, the word for covet in the Greek language, it says Jesus coveted to experience the Last Supper with them. Certainly not something negative. It was a positive thing. It just means wanted. The issue, though, in the wilderness was desires, coveting, wanting, craving. To trace the root of idolatry and immorality and putting the Lord to the test and grumbling, if you trace those behaviors to the root, you'll find one root. Craving, coveting, the same thing, desiring, wanting. When we want something and don't get it, we look elsewhere. It's when we want something and don't get it that we're tempted to be involved in addictive behaviors. That's ultimately the issue. It's the Tenth Commandment, coveting. Now, the deal with coveting is that it might be possible to control your desires. I'm sorry, to control your behaviors. But controlling your desires, would you agree with me? That's a more difficult thing. You can control what you want. I, I, that's above our pay grade. So how are we supposed to deal with sin? If sin is rooted in desires, and desires aren't something that are easy to Control. That's a good question, isn't it? How do we deal with what is at the root of sin? That's what Paul is going to talk about in this passage. That's what he wants the Corinthians to listen for. Um, when we find coveting, where we find coveting, we find something else. And we're trying to look at the foundation here, the foundation of sin. We're exploring it. We're trying to figure out how does this work? If we wanted to decrease sin, increase obedience, we have to deal with desires. So, what, so, and again, there is a verse from Hebrews 3 that gives us some light on some other things about the wilderness. Look what it says in Hebrews 3. Who were they, the writer to Hebrews writes, who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? He's talking about the Israelites. Okay, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those whose sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? Painting the same picture that Paul did, bodies strewn in the desert. And it's asking the question, okay, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their Unbelief. If we trace the root of craving, here's what we find. Idolatry, immorality, 
grumbling, we can trace that root down to desires, craving, wanting. We can trace that root down even deeper into unbelief. Unbelief. Um, the problem existing in the wilderness, it's all problem that we understand. It's, it's unbelief. Unbelief gives birth to desiring and craving, which gives birth to the behaviors that create problems. The problem in the Israelites was unbelief. It indicates at the end of verse 18, to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? There's a word, there's different words for disobedience in the Greek. This is a specific word from a root word that means to be persuaded. And it means to be not persuaded. Not persuaded. So, the disobedience that is spoken of here is a disobedience that's re- that's rooted in disbelief. So, if you're going to sell me something, and, and I am in the market, say Randy's going to sell me something, and I don't trust him. He's going to sell me this or that. If I don't trust him, and he tells me what to do, I'm going to... Oh, thanks. Thanks, Randy. Um, so I'm not going to do what he says. Why am I not going to do what he says? Because I don't trust he has my best interests in mind. That's what it's pointing out on the wilderness. The disobedience was rooted in disbelief. That was the issue. They heard things from God, really didn't believe them. And because they didn't believe them, then it led to craving. And because of craving, it led to all these other kinds of behavior. Coveting and unbelief are closely connected. Unmet needs and unfulfilled desires call God's care into question. I'm not saying they might. I'm saying they do. Unmet needs and unfulfilled desires call God's care into question, the way they call anything into question. If we live in a home and we're not provided for, we're going to call the care of those who watch over us into question if they don't provide. It's the way we relate to things, and we apply that spiritually. When we have unfulfilled desires and unmet needs, at some level, we might not be conscious of it. At some level, we are calling God's care into question. We will. Just something we do. Um, then, when we call God's care into question, I don't think he cares about me. Craving enters our life like water enters a boat with holes. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. I don't think God has my best interest in mind. And then, whoo, desires become irresistible. Think about what happens in the, in the, in the paradise. Paradise. Perfect environment. Not South Dakota. Perfect. There was nothing out of place. And in that place, what was able to happen, they were able to be solicited to eat the fruit of the tree. How in the world did that happen? Do you remember what occurred? What happened first? The serpent comes to Eve and says, Did God really say, You'll die? You know what the deal is? Can can we talk? Can we talk? Here's the deal. This is what the serpent said to Eve. God just doesn't want you to be like him. 
knowing good and evil. Sorry to have to tell you, God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's just a little bit jealous of being God, a little bit insecure, and he's afraid that if you have his information, then he'll be out of a job. And so, um, and she thought about that. And because she wondered if God really cared about her, you know what she ended up doing? Right after that? Boy, I tell you what, if God doesn't have my best interests in mind, I'm going to really need to know a lot so I can protect myself. Boy, that the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil would be helpful, wouldn't it? If I can know good and evil, and if God can't protect me, I'll need to get the information so I can protect myself. And not only knowledge, but boy, I tell you what, that fruit looks good, doesn't it? There's something about unbelief that fosters craving, addictive behaviors. It might be knowledge. It might be pleasure, sensual pleasures. Both of those things we find in the soil of paradise. I tell you what, if craving can be, can grow up in the soil of paradise, you don't live in paradise. I don't live in paradise. We're going to have issues with unbelief. We're going to have issues with craving, and we're going to have issues with the things that craving produces. How do we deal with it? That's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, here's what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them, all these things, bodies strewn, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul seems to be taking a shot at arrogance. Ancient Jews had a tendency to look down on Gentiles as pagans, as somebody so much less than, and Paul calls this arrogance into question. That's why he points out their own wilderness wandering. He says, no temptation has fastened upon you except what is part and parcel of being human, common to man. It's part of being human. Being human means that we are going to be exposed to unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. That's what it means to be human. We don't want one thing. We are spirit beings living in mortal bodies. These are two operating systems. If your spirit gets what it wants, your body doesn't get what it wants. If your body gets what it wants, your spirit doesn't get what it wants. What this means, we cannot escape frustration. We cannot escape unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. It's just the way, just part and parcel of being human. All of us are going to deal with it. You know what else we're going to deal with? Unmet needs, unfulfilled desires, bubbling up, craving, craving. Not just I want something, but I want something. 
I don't like the fact that I have unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. I don't like the way it makes me feel. But I tell you what, if I buy a bunch of things or drink a bunch of stuff or do this or that or the other, it takes the edge off of this. It makes it a little more tolerable. Um, Paul says that that's part and parcel of being human. And what he would have us understand, and again, this is not good news, but it's true. It's true. You will not be able to escape the temptation, the tension of unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. You're going to deal with it. You're going to deal with it. You can't escape it. What we're to do, it says God gives us a way to escape, to bear up under it. You know what bear up under it means? It doesn't mean move out from under it. It means to be able to stand under it without caving, without collapsing with trust. We're going to have to learn to bear up under it, to manage the tension. The tension is going to exist. If you have tension in your life, it's not because you're doing something wrong. You are a spirit being in a mortal body. That's what we have to deal with, part and parcel of being human. Um, we don't eliminate the temptation. We endure it. How do we deal with human issues? God's going to give us the ability to endure what is it about God? What does God direct our attention to to get us to endure? What's our root issue? Remember, there's all these idolatries, sexual immorality, grumbling. Do you remember what's underneath that level? Underneath that, we find craving, craving. Underneath craving, we find What's at the base of it? If we're going to deal with these things up here and this here, would you agree with me? Let's deal with the root of the problem. And what's the root of the problem? Unbelief. That's why God points us to his faithfulness. God is faithful because you know the deal is that's what we call into question. God's faithfulness. I don't have what I need. God must not really like me. He must like people that are better than me. We, we think that tension is optional. It's not optional. God does like you. He does. And the fact that you deal with tension doesn't surprise him. I think he wants us to understand what's happening. This comes from this. This comes from this. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. You may be, what does God give you to allow you to endure things? Does God take your desires away? It doesn't, isn't that the way it works? I want something I shouldn't have, and I say, God, take it away, and then my desire just vanishes. Is that what happened? Is that what happens to you? Anybody else got an experience? No, that's not the way it works. If the desires don't go away, you know what God directs our attention to? He'll have us take our gaze away from what we're trying to control. Take our gaze away from trying to control desires. i got to stop desiring those things. i got to stop doing these things. You know, what God, you know what God directs our attention to? Gaze at him and his commitments. If you 
will learn to gaze at God's commitments. It will help you deal with behaviors, with craving, and with unbelief. It gets to the root of the problem. Thoreau said, for every thousand people whacking away at the leaves of evil, there's one person striking at the root. So he said, for every thousand people whacking away at the leaves of evil, there's only one, there's one person striking at the root. What's at the root? Belief. That's what God gives us. He gives us promises. Gives us commitments. Now they're not magic, but as our ability to believe that God is with us, even in the midst of tension, as that ability to believe that increases, I'm having a rough time, but God's with me. He's not going to cast me adrift. He's not going to leave me behind. As that ability grows, what becomes a little bit less? Craving gets turned down a little bit. We don't crave as much when we feel protected. Everybody understand that? It's just the way it works. And if we feel protected, we don't need to do. Again, we're all going to mess up, but we will find our need to do addictive behaviors, mood-altering behaviors, it will go down. Because it goes down because the craving goes down. And the craving goes down because the belief goes up. The belief goes up because we're focused on God's faithfulness, his commitments. Gaze at God's commitments and glance at God's commandments. That's the way it works. Sacred legalism is an issue, but he goes on to deal with some other things. He says, therefore, my beloved, in verse 14, Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not all those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. What he's doing, Paul is having moved from sacred legalism. Now he's, he's saying, Paul says, let's talk. I'm speaking to reasonable people, right? And he really believes they're reasonable. Let's reason together. Flee idolatry. Paul's insistence on loyalty to one God was not the Roman way. Romans and Greeks, that's not the way they played. The Greeks and later the Romans were very tolerant in their attitude toward other religions and cultures. Um, They basically said, you can continue to worship your gods and goddesses, and we'll worship them as well, and you worship ours. That way, no one's gods will be slighted. And that's the way it worked. It was worship a bunch of different things. Um, People were accustomed to joining in the sacrificial meals of various gods, none of which required an exclusive relationship. You could buzz into Apollo and... Dionysus wouldn't mind. You could buzz in to worship him, and 
And Diana would be fine. She, she's, she's okay with waiting. You know, that's the way they, they saw things. Uh, some believe that there was safety in numbers. They worshipped a, smorgab- a smorgasbord of gods. I mean, you can't have enough gods. You know, they, it's interesting. The reason why Baal worship was such a deal in the Old Testament when they were wandering through the wilderness, or ap- not the wilderness, but afterwards, is because the God of Israel was great in the desert. I mean, if you need some in the desert, if you need water, if you need for birds to fall out of the sky, if you need bread to show up on the ground, the God of Israel, he's your God. But if you're going to be in the city, he's a little bit out of his element. You know, he's like Jed Clampett. You know, he's just, he's not real good in the city. You know, not Beverly Hills. You know, he's good when there's a oil bubbling up from the bubbling crude. He's real good with that. But he's a little bit out of his way. So what you need in the city is... Baal in your other pocket. Baal is the is the god of the city. And so if you're smart, you know, sometimes you might have to go out of the city into the wilderness and out of the wilderness into the city. So put God of Israel in one pocket and Baal in the other. And that's the way the Romans saw things. That made sense. The more gods that were honored, the better the chance of success in life. Paul rejects this. And he says, you gotta, you can't have it both ways. It's really what Elijah did. This is what Elijah battled. He said, choose. If Baal is God, go with Baal. If God is God, go with him. But you can't walk the line. It's one or the other. Paul is bringing the same type of influence. The Lord's Supper is a sacred act that requires absolute allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. What he's saying, you just can't worship the God of Israel and then go to worship Diana on Monday and Apollos on Tuesday and Dionysius on Wednesday. It doesn't work that way. It's not the way you've been taught. That's what Paul is telling them. They couldn't treat feasts. You know what a progressive dinner is? A progressive dinner, you go from place to place. You couldn't, it doesn't work like that. You know, so today's offering will be the God of Israel. And tomorrow we're going to go over to Apollos and see what he has to offer. You know, there's the hors d'oeuvres. You know, he'll serve the hors d'oeuvres. And then the real meal comes with Dionysius. No, he was good for the drink, wasn't he? Dionysius, he was the God of alcohol. So that's where you get, anyways. Okay, enough detail. Why? What's the problem with all this stuff? Paul goes on in verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. And not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul mentions demons four times. This is where. Paul does not call attention to the demonic. He would have been raised to believe in it. He did believe in it. But he just didn't focus on it. You know why? In Paul's mind, Jesus' power was so immense that it absolutely eclipsed focusing on the demonic. What Paul would say, what if if they were demonic-focused? He would say, what in the world are you focused on demons for? Jesus rose from the grave and his authority over all powers and authorities. And so in Paul's, Paul didn't have to call people's attention to demons because he called people's attention to Christ. And if your focus is on Christ, you're good. You're good. Somebody had a a vision once. They saw themselves 
standing. And they, they saw they had this vision or dream, and they saw themselves standing. And there's something that seemed demonic, and it came in front of them. And as they looked at this, they could see themselves shrinking. And here's what happened in the vision. Jesus walked into the vision, stood in front of this person, and the demon immediately hit the ground. Immediately. Wasn't even a battle. And then, here's what happened. Jesus backed into the woman. And then she got it. Christ is in me. Do I really need to worry about the demonic? And the answer is, no. No, Paul doesn't worry about it. That's why he doesn't talk about it a bunch. He talks about Christ. He talks about standing firm in Christ. Because if you're firm in Christ, you're fine. That's what. That's where Paul's focus is. The Gospels talk about the demonic because that's on the front side of Jesus' victory. It's Jesus dealt with spirits and demons to indicate, I am the victor over these forces. And then being raised from the dead, that seals it. And so Paul then, as a spokesperson after, that's why we find Paul's, the amount of demonic he talks about, it just tails off. Paul doesn't talk about exorcisms. Luke describes one when he talks about Paul's ministry. Paul doesn't talk about them. And Paul never talks about hell. He doesn't talk about it once. Never mentions it. According to Paul, it's not where the focus should be. Where should the focus be? Where should your gaze be? He's faithful. He's faithful. Why should I focus on that? Because if I believe in his faithfulness, then I don't have to deal with as much craving. If I don't have to deal with as much craving, then I don't have to deal with as many behaviors, right? Boss focuses our mind on behavior. I mean on belief, excuse me. Goes on, verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth of this world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if somebody says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks. Or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What he says, don't go to a pagan feast. That's what he says. You can't, it's not a progressive dinner. If you're going to do the Christian thing, worship Jesus. You can't bounce.
bounce from place to place. Don't go to the don't go to the feast, but you're going over to somebody's house, Nordstrom's, and they're serving meat offered to Dionysus. And if <laughs> I, no, but if you go over there, you don't have to say, uh, Travis, was this offered? You don't have to inquire. If somebody says something, then you say, you know, I'm going to abstain. I'm going to abstain, but I don't need to investigate. Don't need to investigate. If you're in a meat market, don't need to investigate. And it seems that that was part of the issue. Pharisees were very careful when they went to somebody's house to eat. So if they went, if I come to your house, uh, coming to the Gertz's house, was this mustard, the mustard that you're serving, were the mustard seeds tithed? No, again, this is, did you separate one seed out of every ten? Because then they wouldn't use the mustard if the mustard seeds weren't tithed. They were fastidious about that. And I think what's happening in in this community, I think the Corinthians are under some pressure. Whenever you go in, make sure you ask, because that's what the Pharisees would have done. And they almost used it as an opportunity to do a spiritual selfie. So if, if we're in the meat market, here's what it might have been like. Um, uh, excuse me, if, back there? Yeah, if, I'm sorry, but I, I have a question to ask him back there. You know, this is a big meat market, and I have a question. Um, yeah, Raleigh? Raleigh? Was this meat over here offered to an idol? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I just need to know that because I don't need meat offered to idols. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's what they were doing. It's like a spiritual selfie. And it was, and so, and who gets focused on there? You know who. And what he ends up, what Paul's point is, Paul's point, there is a point here. Let your freedom show love and respect for somebody else. It's not all about, it's not all about you. Not all about you. If somebody raises a question, and if you do something, they might, their conscience might be harmed. They might think, okay, it's okay for me to, Eat this food. In that case, don't do it. Say no, because it's not all about us. We don't need to have what we want now. You say, why not, Mike? Because we're good in Christ. Our time's coming. hundred years from now, I'm going to ask you about unmet needs and unfulfilled desires, and you will not be able to find one. I'm going to ask you about cravings. <laughs> You're going to look at me and say, what? How could I crave when he is my God? How could I crave knowing that that's who he is and how much he cares about me and he protects me and I'm not going anywhere? Why do I need to crave when he is looking out over me? I'm not craving. That's the way it's going to be. hundred years from now on this side. We're going to have some issues. Use your freedom. Be concerned about brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. 
What Paul's saying here is don't let it be all about self-affirmation and self-gratification and self-fulfillment. One of the things I appreciate, and we're going to have a closing song. Come on up, Evan. I really like the way AA has figured this. Here's what they say in the fifth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says do a moral inventory, and then it goes to talk about what to do with an awareness of all these resentments and sexual acting out, all these bad things. Here's what it says. I want you to listen. Remove from me every single defective character that stands in the way of my, anybody know what it says? That stands in the way of my usefulness. Usefulness to you and my fellows. That's what AA has figured out. If you want to deal with addiction, what you do is you get to the source of it. It's not all about me. Remove from me every single defective character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. That's, that makes sense. Father, thank you for your promises and your commitments. I pray that the roots of our faith would be driven deeply into them. That's ultimately what belief enables us to manage the tension of unfulfilled desires and unmet needs because we know that it's temporary and that helps us not to be sidelined into things that ultimately can't meet those needs. Again, we're going to fall, but when we do, I'd ask that you would enable us to come back and think about you. As we've talked about before, again, I just want you to keep your eyes closed. We do things that we wish we didn't do. And what we are to do with that is refocus on him. You might have done something. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about him. Him. You're still in me. You're still with me. Because you're faithful. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. Oh God, you're faithful. You're still in me. I did things that are faithless. You're still in me and you're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. Thank you for being faithful. That's what allows us to endure, bear up under things that are difficult. In Jesus' name. Amen.